you're listening to Raising Your Antenna with host Keith Zakheim. Welcome to Raising Your Antenna. I am your host, Keith Zakheim. And as always, it is a pleasure to spend some time with you as we examine the news, trends, and ideas that are driving the B2B technology industry. While we don't endorse candidates on this podcast or interview politicians or derive any revenue from campaign ads, we do encourage our listeners to vote. So I hope by the time you listen to this episode that you exercise your civic duty and cast a vote. Today is a first for raising your antenna as I'm hosting this episode from our San Francisco studio, overlooking the hustle and bustle of Market Street at the Antenna Group offices. The sky is blue, the temperature is in the high 70s, and as an East Coaster, I am happy to be on the West Coast today. The clean energy investment game has changed much over the years. I think it could be broken into two phases. Phase one kicked off by President George W. Bush's 2005 State of the Union, in which he decried our nation's addiction to oil. And that first phase was marked by, to quote Alan Greenspan in a different context, irrational exuberance. Every VC, every venture capitalist was suddenly hoping to do well by doing good. All of Sand Hill Road saw Google-like exits in the reflection of silicon wafers and rushed to throw money at clean energy startups that showed promise in the laboratory, but little hope in commercial markets. Symbolically, the era of phase one ended with a thud with a Salinger debacle. But truth be told, there are smarter investors out there who approached phase one with a more sober perspective, kept investing through the downturn, and have now been leading the charge into what we can call clean tech phase two. Clean tech phase two is, has more of an de- expansive definition of clean tech and includes a number of sub verticals, including energy storage, energy management and efficiency, ag tech, clean transportation and mobility, smart cities, and others. And there's no question that the dollars are back in the clean energy game. According to data from PitchBook, 2018 will see $10.8 billion in worldwide clean tech investment, up from $6.1 billion in 2017. And in the U.S., it will grow from $2.4 billion in 2017 to $3.7 billion this year. So we're definitely on another crest, uh, and the clean energy and clean technology industry is back. Today, we're fortunate to have Daniel Goldman of Clean Energy Venture Group, which is a seed stage fund in Boston and New York, and invests in emerging clean energy companies. Daniel is one of those investors who has seen the ups and the downs, rode the economic ways of the industry, and has emerged as one of the most trusted and savvy investors in the clean energy space. So Daniel, welcome. And uh, if you could please share with, uh, with our listeners your professional background and your journey that has gotten you here today. Keith, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I am on the East Coast in the greater Boston area where I can tell you, first, I voted. So that's a good thing. Second, we have uh, rainy and cold. So you should feel yourself fortunate to be on the West Coast. I appreciate that. And I do. So thank you for that. Sure, sure. So my background um, started in the oil and gas industry. I actually was a consultant right out of uh, grad school, um, spent about seven years um, consulting to oil and gas companies around the world, spent four of those years in Singapore, and then was recruited to join a power development company. And we developed fossil-based power generation all over the world, coal-fired power plants, gas-fired power plants. And um, when I moved into the clean energy sector, 
um, I was doing so really to rectify my history, um, offset all the carbon I had basically developed over over the years with four billion dollars of power plants put in the ground. That's fantastic. Um, so, but, so this is kind of your the penance phase of your career. This, this is my penance, correct? <laughs> um, I'm hopefully over the last twenty years I've more than offset um, my uh, carbon emissions from the early part of my career. But in any event, I mean, one of the things that did do was to give me a global perspective on energy markets. And so when I came to the clean energy markets, which I came to quite skeptically, um, I looked at everything in the context of, of energy, of oil, of gas, of coal, of electricity. And that, that provided, I think, a very solid foundation and a sense of realism um, for looking at w whether it was projects, which I did um, for a while investing in clean energy projects or investing in clean energy technologies. And so I had the fortune, you could say, uh, misfortune in terms of emitting carbon, but the fortune of being able to place the clean energy investing framework, for, which, which sort of drives my decision making into the context of global energy markets. Fantastic. And I guess if you look back at maybe some some of the things that went wrong in phase one of the clean tech investment cycle, do you think that just it was, I mean, part of it is exactly that, that people had the wrong investment framework uh, for clean energy and, um, and, and phase two now is uh, maybe shaking out differently in which people like yourself are, are bringing a different methodology, a different framework into how they're investing in, in these technologies? It's a great question, and, and we've thought about this question a lot. I should say that the more recent background over the last decade has been running Clean Energy Venture Group, which is a, a group of early-stage investors. We invested our own money and some third-party capital in early-stage clean energy companies. We invested in about 32 companies. We shut a few down. We sold a few, and we have a great operating portfolio. But our loss rate was substantially lower than um, that of the entire industry. And we actually have a positive return on um, the overall portfolio. From that, what followed was uh, we created a fund. So we now have a $100 million early stage, clean energy focused fund. And the reason we started the fund was that we looked back over what we called Clean Tech 1.0, which was sort of the period before 2006, and then Cleantech 2.0, which was the 2006 to 2011 heyday, and then the more recent period, and tried to really understand what went wrong in particularly that 2006 to 2011 period. And when we did that, you know, we and we actually wrote a paper with series on this, which I'm happy to send you. Or send hey, that would be great, and we, we can post it to the to the podcast, and uh, our listeners can download that. Uh, you know, when they access the cast, that's perfect. Great, great. So what, what we saw was that you know a lot of the investments during that 2006 to 2011 period were in very capital-intensive businesses. So there was a lot in biofuels, there was gasification, there was solar manufacturing, there was wind turbine manufacturing. So these were things that required hundreds of millions of dollars to really launch a venture. And that was not really uh, conducive to getting to market fast, to earning venture returns, um, and creating strategic exits. Um, so capital intensity had a lot to do with the ability to uh, achieve viable returns, venture-style returns. 
But the uh, there, there are a lot of other differences. I mean, for, for one, today we have many more strategics playing in the market. Um, we have global oil energy companies, oil and gas companies, utilities. We have materials companies, lots of even retail, real estate that are playing in the clean energy markets because it matters to them. These are all businesses that are adopting clean energy technologies. They're looking to drive costs down. They're looking to make their businesses more efficient. So they're in the market. And we didn't have that previously. There were not the same number of strategics um, investing in this market or even more importantly, buying the products and services offered by clean energy companies. That's retail, hospitality, real estate, financial markets, um, and of course, all sorts of industries. That's a huge difference that we're seeing today that really wasn't present in the 2006 to 2011 period. And then the other thing is companies are able to develop their technology um, and, and get to a more mature state. Um, by, and, and, and that just basically reduces the risks for investors. Um, and they can do that on their own without uh, venture funding. And so there's a much greater ecosystem around the industry, around the clean energy markets to support companies in an early stage so that they can get a product into the market, test it with customers. And so when venture capital is coming to the table, usually there's a a viable product, a minimum viable product. Um, There's some market adoption. And the capital the companies need is really to scale the business, maybe move from a generation one product to a generation two product. But it's not about we want to develop a pilot plant or we want to develop a bench scale um, uh, uh, product in the lab. So that's a very different level of risk. And the reason companies are able to do that is because we have this incredible ecosystem that's developed over the years. We have folks like Elemental Accelerator, Powerhouse on the West Coast. We have Greentown Labs here, which is the largest clean energy incubator in the world. 95 companies at last count there. We have the Northeast Clean Energy Council in, in New England and New York that supports the ecosystem. So there's lots of infrastructure around, both for funding, for rapid prototyping, for collaboration um, that supports the companies. Okay, great, that that makes sense. I I think, you know, your professional background in terms of coming maybe out of the traditional oil and gas space and then having been in the clean energy uh, industry for some time and, and seeing the ebbs and flows of the industry um, that certainly gives you a, a unique uh, purview for and, and insights into the space. And I bring that up because I, I was reading an article recently last week. The Stanford Global Energy Forum, the founder of SunPower, Dick Swanson, who's I know one of the one of the leading minds in in clean energy for for decades already. He referred to right now as the most exciting moment in the history of of the clean energy sector. Um, and and he, he's not a man of hype, right? This is it's not somebody who's trying to hype up an investment or or attract dollars. He he thought from just uh, kind of an ecosystem perspective and the innovations that he's seen come to market um, and the capital that that that's out there and ready to invest. He thought this was an incredibly exciting moment. So, a you know again with your history in the space, do you agree with that? Uh, and b if that's the case, then you know with your fund, you know how do you focus and what are you focusing on and how do you not get swept up into things that maybe are a little more on the hype side and, and stay focused on things that are substantive and and you really feel um, we'll get traction, uh, we'll um, you know we'll we'll get into the market and and, and find those early adopters and, and eventually commercialize. 
Well, yeah, it's a great question. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with him. I, I think this is an incredibly exciting time. Um, what makes it exciting is that we see an incredible um, group of entrepreneurs out there who are developing very exciting technologies that have a real need in the market. And so I can look across our existing portfolio and companies that we've invested in over the last year. And, you know, these are technologies that are bringing the cost of, of solar down by 60% or uh, lightweighting carbon fiber materials or um, addressing emerging market energy access through smart metering technology. Um, you know, companies that are um, uh, looking at solar utility scale solar and trying to uh, reduce the cost of maintenance using drones. Um, there's just an amazing array of, of technologies out there. And I think what we try to do, um, because as you say, there's a lot of hype in various markets. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, potential for getting caught up in waves that might uh, go up and down. We try to stay focused on things that we think, as I said earlier, um, can get to scale at relatively low cost and have some traction in the market. We really like to see customer traction um, and uh, not just one customer. And, and we typically in our diligence, will talk to 10, 20 um, potential customers of a particular product before we, uh, before we make an investment. So, you know, mm -hmm. we're seeing just an enormous array of stuff, but we try to be focused and we pr try to develop what I would call roadmaps of the future for subsectors of the industry. And when we develop these roadmaps, um, we try to forecast forward what is going to happen in, in, a, in, in, for example, distributed generation or vehicle to grid market. And when we look at that, we try to figure out what's missing technologically to make that market really take off. And that helps guide our investment decision. We can sit here and look at the hundreds of deals that come in every month, or we can go out and try to find the technologies that we think can change the world and also are radically needed in particular subsectors in the market. And so we, we do both. We, we try to have strong points of view, and we obviously look at the massive deal flow that comes into us. Okay. Um, let's shift gears. Um, and, you know, as mentioned in the opening, and, and you did uh, uh, your civic duty this morning, as you said, and you voted, but today is election day, and, and don't want to get political, uh, but, uh, you know, a lot hangs in the balance vis-a-vis -vis energy and, and clean tech when it comes to, um, you know, government, both state uh, and the federal government. And, you know, there does seem to be more bipartisan consensus in certain states about climate change and the need for mitigation technologies, right? So if you're in a state, it doesn't really matter where you are. If you get hit by one of these massive hurricanes, um, I think everybody's perspective, whether you're on the right or the left, changes a little bit. Uh, about about climate change and 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 how we're gonna you know mitigate some of the impacts of that. But still, if you look across the country, it's still a battleground issue. Um, and uh, so I know markets don't like uncertainty, right? So the clearer uh, policy is, the the better the market uh, is, is going to be. But but you know, how does the investor world? It's not necessarily about, about these midterms, but in general, how does it look at state government, federal government right now? Uh, the impact on the future of clean energy and how you uh, will kind of, as part of your uh, investment calculus, you know, how do you layer those factors in? Yeah, so um, we shouldn't get too uh, into the weeds on all politics. Um, we 
but it, it is obviously policy, policy, and not, policy and not politics. Policy, not politics. That's exactly. a great way to describe it. Yeah. I think the, well, I mean, I should say the companies we invest in, we want, don't want them to be dependent on policy per se. Okay. Um, we want them to be able to create a, a product or service that has a value proposition for its customers in the market and not with um, a production tax credit or an investment tax credit or something else. If they get grant funding or um, loans or whatever from state government or federal government, that's great. Now, all of these companies need that at the early stage, and, and that's, that's what has happened in other industries. We think it's important for this industry as well. So no one's going to complain about that. But I think what economists and, and, and many, many uh, Fortune 500 companies agree with now is that a price on carbon is a critical solution, and it's a great solution. And we just need politicians to stand up and have the courage and the ethics to implement a price on carbon. Um, that said, when we look at investments, we don't plan on a price on carbon. We hope for it, and we look at what the top possible upside would be if there were a price on carbon, but we don't plan for it because um, it doesn't seem like a near-term reality for our companies. Um, and, I think the I, one, I like, yeah. would you agree that that maybe that perspective that you have and a lot of investors have right now is, um, you know, if government can be, uh, you know, can 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 help in some way, whether it's through grants or regulation or, or programs or what have you, that's great. But we're not going to count on it. We're going to, you know, the, the companies that we invest in have to sink or swim uh, based on just, you know, the kind of the private sector and the private markets. Um, uh, or you know, non-government funding um, is that different than it was, you know, pre two thousand ten, and that what you call the second phase. I was calling the first phase when I think a big part of the business plan was that you know let's get in front of government. They're going to pick a lot of winners and losers, and we got to make sure that you know the companies that get that funding from government are going to be the winners. And as we know, it didn't necessarily work out that way. But that seems to be a bit of a paradigm shift. I do. I mean, I, I agree with you one hundred percent. I think a lot of investments were premised on. The, you know, the ARARA when loan guarantees and ARPA-E grants and other federal Department of Energy um, incentives were being offered. A lot of those companies that received some of those incentives didn't make it. Um, and uh, I, I think that wasn't necessarily linked to the incentives themselves, but I think a lot of the venture investment went in counting on some uh, some federal support for the company. And um, a lot of companies received that federal, federal support, but were really never able to um, uh, affect it, um, to put it into um, a, a production plant or whatever. So yeah, I, I think it definitely had some negative consequences in uh, clean tech 2.0, as I call it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think what we're seeing now is states certainly showing a lot of bipartisan support for addressing climate change, both sides of the aisle. And um, I think politicians are recognizing that this is kind of what I describe a win-win-win, where they're addressing climate change, they're creating economic activity, they're creating jobs in their state, and it's a competitive dynamic, so they want the jobs in their state. And they're hopefully um, looking for the fact that if they address climate change, the other effect will be that they won't have super storms, um, they won't need to spend money on storm walls and, and prevent, prevent these catastrophes. And maybe they can spend less on resiliency down the road if um, we actually uh, start to mitigate climate change. So I think, you know, it's, it's sort of 
education has helped politici politicians realize the economic advantages, but also these ancillary climate change and um, reduction of, of potential infrastructure spending as well. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned resiliency. You know, at our agency, we have staff meetings and we're kind of always talking about what we're hearing from media and analysts and, and clients. The word resiliency keeps coming up a lot these days. And, you know, we hear resiliency as it relates to energy storage, grid backup plans, extreme weather and climate change, uh, greater reliance that we're going to have on continuous electricity, electricity service, decentralized water sources and decaying water infrastructure, cyber and physical threats to the grid. So, you know, how does a need for an energy and resource system that's resilient and stable uh, impact your investment strategies? What are the technologies and solutions um, that you see out there that, that really can address the challenges of resiliency uh, and can be, again, brought to market quickly? Um, and whether it's uh, state government, federal government, um, or just, uh, you know, consumers out there, um, you know, who are going to be the first movers in adopting these types of things? Like, what does that look like to you? Well, I think it's, um, it's, it's largely, we, we see a lot of investment in distributed energy resources and storage and tying the two together as a principal focus of ways to address resiliency. There, of course, there are lots of other ways, but that's where a lot of, I think, venture investment has gone. Um, because, you know, we, we need, if we can distribute the resources, we don't have a central grid with central power stations, we don't rely yeah. on transmission infrastructure. It's pretty obvious what the advantages are of that. The and solar plus storage mantra. Yeah, solar plus storage. Um, and I think costs are coming to a point where this is really able to um, grow to scale. I, I think it's been tough with the cost of storage, but I think uh, we are approaching a point where there's there's really going to be widespread adoption, not only in the commercial industrial space, but I think at the residential level as well, or certainly close to residential level. Um, so we, I mean, we have one company as an example called Pika Energy. They've been doing resiliency work in places like Puerto Rico. I mean, obviously that's cleanup too, but but they're, what they're doing is preparing Puerto Rico for the next storm. Um, and and by, by installing um, their system, which is basically um, a bus that ties storage together with distributed energy resources on a direct current basis, very efficient, um, bi-directional flow of power. It's exactly what you need. Um, when you're rebuilding and also want to have a system that can survive storms. It can be islanded, so you don't need to rely on the grid for it to operate. Um, totally critically essential um, in the future environment that you can island your system. So I, I, the one thing I will say about resiliency and the focus on it is I think it can have the negative impact of detracting from the real issue of climate change. We don't want to swing the pendulum all the way where everyone's just focusing on resiliency technologies and not addressing um, the amount of greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere and trying to build more solar, more wind, um, great, better technologies for solar and wind, uh, reducing the cost of those so they can compete effectively all over the world with um, with fossil-based technologies. Right. And so we're I seeing guess, that. I, I guess, I guess we, what you're saying yeah, then is, is, that, is that if... if, if if there's a de facto acceptance of resiliency, needing investment, 
um, needing support, then at the same time, we're also saying climate change is a given and we're accepting that, right? So that's what you want to get away from. You want to make sure that we're yeah. combating climate change at the same time as we're, um, you know, make, making provisions for resiliency as well. Yeah, Keith, I think we have to be really careful about that. Um, we, we, should, we, we shouldn't accept that climate change um, cannot be um, mitigated. It's going to be very tough, but we should give it everything we've got and we should invest to try to do that. Yeah, you know, and it just makes sense, Daniel, just from, I think, the way, you know, people generally will adopt new solutions, new behaviors in times of crises um, and probably are less uh, adept at being proactive, at trying to, you know, get ahead of a crisis. And, and in this case, resiliency, the type of thing that post as you said, you know, when your portfolio company is doing work in Puerto Rico, so after the an island's been essentially leveled, um, and so yeah, you have the emergency workers going and trying to get the grid back up, but at the same time, government now in a crisis, you know, never waste a crisis. We'll say, okay, we need to make sure uh, that when this happens again, we have the uh, tools we need to to, to be resilient. Um, but government officials, so, and that's something that people can buy into. It's more difficult for after. Um, one of these disasters for government to go to their uh, respective constituents and say, by the way, let's try to avoid the disaster the next time by working on climate change. So I think there's probably some, it's kind of human nature, political nature that will generally trend towards resiliency and away from trying to combat climate change. But um, I, I agree that, that, that that's, that's dangerous. Yeah, agreed. You have a storm like that, people want their power back on and they want to make sure it's going to stay on for the next storm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let, let, let's uh, shift. We've got a few more minutes here. Um, let's, if we can, shift focus a little bit into the mobility space. And that, that's, an, that's, that's an industry that, uh, you know, my agency has over the last couple of years, uh, you know, seen a lot of growth in. We kind of track similar to venture capital. So, uh, where venture capital deploys their money within clean tech or energy tech, we tend to do work in as well. So mobility has been one of those hot spots. And uh, it's not a matter of if, it's really more a matter of when autonomous vehicles become a ubiquitous feature of the modern urban transportation environment. Um, yesterday, I was uh, actually using a micromodal uh, solution. I was using one of those scooters to get around to a meeting in San Francisco. Felt very urbane, felt very non-New York. It was, it was a great <laughs> feeling. Um, but uh, as I was scooting along uh, in the, um, uh, I think it was Proterra Hills District, um, I saw two different uh, kind of autonomous vehicles uh, doing some test runs in the neighborhood. So it's already becoming somewhat ubiquitous in San Francisco. But I think we all we all can see a day when it, what's going to, you know, all of our big cities certainly are going to have uh, autonomous vehicles. And that, that brings its own set of challenges, one of those being um, the electrification infrastructure investments that government and utilities need to make in order to meet the demands of, of this new transportation environment. So, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And is that an area as well that, that, that you guys are looking at? Yes. So um, certainly we believe that EV adoption will increase pretty dramatically in the U.S. It's already taking off quite dramatically in China. China is working up to 12% of the overall vehicle fleet being electrified over the coming five years or so. And we believe it will take longer for the U.S. to do that, but um, it eventually is going to happen. But I think you have to also put EVs and autonomy in a broader context of what's happening in mobility, because 
like you said, you, you took a scooter yesterday and, you know, there are bike shares, there are electric bike shares, there are scooter shares. There, there's an enormous number of options out there now um, within urban environments, which is increasingly where most, most people are living and suburban environments even. We have a, a bike share program in uh, seemingly rural Newton. Um, so um, <laughs> okay. they are branching out. And I think the interface between the automobile, um, the public uh, transportation network, and private um, shared uh, scooter, bike, whatever, mobility markets um, are, are growing so rapidly and creating this um, diversified seamless system. And that's a great thing because I think ultimately it will make um, users less dependent on the automobile. And right now, you know, there are stories about how there are 30% more cars in San Francisco because of um, the uh, uh, Uber Lyft effect. And that is not what was intended by um, shared mobility, I think. Um, the shared mobility was meant to improve the efficiency of our use of, of transportation, um, but it doesn't seem to be happening so far. If we want that to happen, and we want more people to get into electric vehicles, shared electric vehicles, hopefully, we do need a much uh, broader charging infrastructure that works for everyone. We need it um, whether you own a home, whether you rent a home, whether you're wealthy or middle income or lower income, um, these are critical infrastructure resources that everyone needs. Um, and it needs to be a two-way connection. It needs to be managed um, correctly with the grid and intelligently managed. So it's going to be critical if we want broader adoption of EVs that we get these systems installed, not only in cities, but also on the major highways as well. That's probably not happening as, as fast as we need it to happen, although we have some pretty exciting companies out there trying to utilize different business models to do so. Um, and I think all of this is tied into autonomy um, because yeah. uh, we, 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 we have yeah, to have... My, my, my working assumption when I talk about autonomous vehicles in the future is that they will be powered by you know, electric vehicles. They'll be battery powered, so... Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think that's going to be a much uh, more efficient system, uh, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, the last thing I would say on this is, you know, one of the things we're missing in the whole electricity system is the ability to send price signals to consumers. And I think as we get electric vehicles integrated, um, we're going to need more real-time pricing. We're going to need consumers to be able to manage their load based on the pricing they're seeing. And that will really help um, uh, smooth out uh, peaks um, across the, uh, the system in various places uh, because price signals will, will basically help users to um, reduce their load. That's a great point. And, and, and that's something that we're seeing now in the electricity markets um, as it relates to uh, you know, commercial entities and businesses and those types of things. And, um, but getting down to uh, you know, consumers, um, whether it's you know residential homeowners um, or just you know again for your your own personal electric vehicle, those are things that, that there needs to be a lot of progress on. So uh, agreed on that. Um, so Daniel, you know we're almost at the end of our uh, of our time here, um, but I kind of give you the floor. Are there anything else you kind of wanted to address today? What are the hidden gems maybe in the clean energy world? Or you want to give a shout out to 
a couple of your portfolio companies or bring us through some of that, you know, whatever works for you. Uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, it's great to have the floor. Um, I think the hidden gems, like, a great way to think about it, hidden gems in this market are the extraordinary entrepreneurs we're seeing out there. I mean, it's not a week doesn't go by where um, someone doesn't walk through our door and present a really exciting technology. Um, and the passion of the entrepreneurs that goes with that is extraordinary. We've been mentoring and supporting entrepreneurs for almost 15 years now. Um, it's something we love to do. We actually were honored to win an award at the Northeast Clean Energy Council Green Tide Gala uh, two weeks ago as Startup Supporter of the Year. It was a, a broad effort among many CEVG partners and, and Clean Energy Venture Fund partners. Um, so we're really excited about that. But it's really the entrepreneurs who I think are the hidden gems in this whole market. And they're, they're going to be the ones that save this planet. And so we have to give them all the attention we can, and we have to back their companies um, and support them to uh, build them into, into very large, scalable, profitable businesses. There's no way we can address climate change and resiliency um, without creating scalable companies that are uh, profitable. So love it. And let me ask you a quick question on that then. Entrepreneur comes through your door and you're saying you're seeing a different breed of entrepreneurs today than you did maybe 15 years ago. What's motivating that entrepreneur percentage-wise? How much of it is the economic signals and indicators right now, and how much of it is motivated by climate change and mitigation technologies around that? I think there is an underlying um, objective that they want to do something to address climate change. But ultimately, I think entrepreneurs today, and this may be a little different than 15 years ago, recognize that um, they can do both. They can um, build a scalable company that has a strong economic proposition and a strong economic payoff for them, and at the same time have po be a positive force in addressing environmental issues. And I, I mean, I think they come at it with that passion first around wanting to do something positive for the world. We see it constantly, um, but they don't see any conflict in what they're doing economically. Fantastic. And Daniel, we have, yep, perfect. That's great. And we have, um, you know, a big portion of our listeners are entrepreneurs and founders and uh, those types of people. So if somebody is listening today and, or when we release it, listens to the podcast and they have a fantastic business idea and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so? So we actually have a form that folks can use to apply for funding from the fund uh, at CEVF.com. Clean Energy Venture Fund um, is what that stands for, CEVF.com. And filling out that form is just an easy way for us to get a snapshot of information on the company and decide if it's a good fit for us to uh, take a deeper look and uh, have them present. Fantastic. So we'll make sure to add that to the show notes as well. Daniel, thank you so much for the time. This was fantastic. Uh, I know that our listeners appreciate your thoughts and insights uh, and look forward to uh, seeing you in person uh, in the near future and, and catching up. That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Keith. Really appreciate it. And another episode of Raising Your Antenna is in the books. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to connecting again next week. Raising Your Antenna is a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, Keith Zakheim, 
that features the movers and shakers and key influencers of the B2B technology industry. Our guests are leading revolutions and disruptions in the mobility, clean energy, healthcare, and real estate technology industries. Raising Your Antenna is brought to you by Antenna Group, a full-service digital marketing and public relations agency that focuses on the B2B technology industry. Please be in touch with me on Twitter at czackheim with any feedback about this podcast. And check out Antenna Group at www.antennagroup.com if your organization is looking for a really smart and good-looking marketing and public relations partner.